You're listening to the Spandex Power Armor Podcast. The eighth wonder of the world. Hello and welcome to the Spandex Power Armor Podcast with myself, Hypnopotamus Rex, and my co-host, Carmen Ranger. How's it going, folks? This is our Kong Skull Island special, and before we get into the ape-related madness, we'd like to remind you that this cast is sponsored by TokuToyStore.com. When your dad tells you he wants to grow some balls, now you can buy them in the form of the Q-Tom from Toku Toy Store. You don't need to grow a pair, you can buy eight of them. Actually, nine of them. Then the other ones, the auxiliary ones. Buy them. They are pretty cool. They even have the common Rider gummies out. Yeah. Just, yes. You see. When you want imported stuff from Japan to Europe, they are the best choice. As we said, this is our Kong episode, because both of us have now seen Kong Skull Island. We were going to think of a special pun-related name for it, but we just didn't have the time. Yep, AVGN beat us to it. Okay, so just a heads up, this cast will contain quite a few spoilers for the film, so if you haven't seen it yet and you don't want it spoiled, don't give us a listen until you've seen it. We are happy to wait. We're going to wait right here. Yep, just, yeah. we're just going to wait. We're just yep. going to wait here. So Take your time, uh, take your time. Weather's been okay, Ranger? Ah, it's been a bit too bright for me. I, I don't know, yeah. A bit, bit warmish. Waiting. Have you seen the film yet? Good, let's go. Yes, but let's be honest. Are we expecting any real major spoilers from a Kong movie? Yes. It was Earth all along. Hang on, wrong series. It was all a dream, maybe? <clears throat> That's Godzilla's revenge logic. See, I wish I woke up and the whole film was a dream and it didn't exist. Uh, so, uh, starting off, we're going to go with a uh, brief plot synopsis so we don't give too much away. People go on an island. There is a giant ape on that island. Hijinks ensue. Immediately following the end of the Vietnam War, John Goodman and his plucky young sidekick try to investigate Skull Island with the help of Samuel L. Jackson's stylish Captain Ahab character. Oh man, he is basically Captain Ahab. Except instead of a white whale, he's after a brown gorilla. Is Kong brown? I haven't seen the fur properly. It's sort of a brownie black. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's almost brown, kind of like a, a lighter brown, like uh, like what the uh, model was for the 1933 film. Oh yeah, I thought of him more of a tortoise shell. Or do apes not have kitty hair? You know, Rex, not everything can be explained but with a cat metaphor. That explains so much. So anyway, John Goodman's character also recruits Tom Hiddleston because, sod it, we need some charm. See, that's the one thing I hate about this film. I can't look up anything about it without the uh, Hiddleston fangirls just fawning over it. And some Chinese lady to appeal to the Chinese audience. Even though she has no screen time, unfortunately, despite she being a biologist. She does very little. I know, like, you, what the You'd hell? think the biologist would be the uh, one of the more prominent characters, like, oh, look at this weird thing. This is how it works. No. Let she, me explain these things to you. She gets nothing. Well, welcome to modern films now. You need uh, you need Asian characters that don't do anything? Well, that's what you wanted, China. Thanks, Trump. We would tell you the names, but we just can't remember them. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like Rogue One. You can never remember the characters' names. They're just It's the actors who play them. Like, I don't look at, um, what's his name? Uh... Bill Rada, I see. Oh, it's John Goodman doing uh, doing John Goodman things. Oh, look, it's uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson. The characters were good, but the names don't matter. You just see them because they were big names. Yeah, it's not like they're not memorable characters. I do like these characters. You know, Samuel L. Jackson, as we said before, plays a Captain Ahab type. Yeah, you know, like a soldier who can't let go of um, the war because they're you know being forced out of it without him feeling like he they won it properly. It's a strong character and a decent arc, but maybe it's just the name. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's such a big name actor or what. I just can't see him as anyone other than Samuel L. Jackson. So anyway, this plucky band of scientists and misfits enlist the help of Jackson's Ahab character, along with a bunch of marines that are tokenistic. You've got the black one, the dad, the bland one, the young one. And the and, crazy one. Yeah, and the crazy one. Everyone loves the crazy one. Everyone loves the crazy one. And of course, their first response to encountering the island is to bomb the Jim Christ out of it. They were coming hot off the tail of Vietnam War. There was, you know, old habits die hard, I guess. With blaring rock music and 
Kong just 360 no scopes them oh, out of man. the air. That, that, that scene was probably one of my favorites in the movie. Like when they're um, when they're just starting to drop those seismic charges and um, Paranoid by Black Sabbath starts playing. Like the scenes are like uh, the rotor blades kind of slow down. You can hear the beats in time to the uh, music. It's really great. He throws a tree trunk yeah. straight through one. That is amazing. Then he appears. They start firing at him. He gets mad and just smashes the place up. It is beautiful. That mm. was a great scene. For those of you who feel kind of maligned by the 2014 Godzilla film, this film is it takes all of your concerns about that and fixes them we've got engaging characters who stick around we've got a decent amount of monster screen time and a decent amount of monster fights too yes and we'll get back into that later and so after being separated into two groups one led by Jackson and Goodman's band who are hell-bent on killing Kong and the other who is led by Tom Hiddleston's Tom character Hiddleston. yeah Tom Hiddleston and yeah, right. the other science what we people mean. We were trying to remember his character's name. Apparently, it's James Conrad. We just don't. It just doesn't occur to us. It, it, he's he's Loki now. Yeah, it's, 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 it's Loki. It's, Sorry, it's Loki. Well, I mean, considering Miss um, Marvel's in this film as well. Oh yeah, Brie Larson. Hey, what is it about these um, films having like two Marvel actors in it? Because the previous one had Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Oh, I remember Brie Larson's character now. She was the photographer lady. Who was yeah, it. that's it. You had the one group who were like very pro-war, pro-aggression. They were isolated, and the rest who were sort of against it Ooh. and wanted peace. Yeah, let's be nice to everything. Ooh. Yeah. The latter group encounters the natives and also John C. Riley, who had been abandoned on the island after a flight crash. Aside from the team of investigators, there is also a small subplot about John C. Riley's character having been caught up on the island after a dogfight with a Japanese officer and their resulting off-screen friendship after a fight scene early on in the film and their encounter with Kong. It isn't really shown at all, but it's always mentioned. Yeah, it's mentioned off-screen. Like, uh, John C. Riley's character mentioned him a couple times we see um we see his grave stuff like that it's kind of sweet because you can tell they really cared about each other and the director john voight roberts has said several times in interviews that he really wished he'd been able to do like a spin-off film with uh, those two characters in it still it's quite well made if they can convey that story without actually showing you what happened well let's put it this way if we can get as much character and uh personality from these lines of dialogue yeah more in these brief scenes that we did in the entirety of the godzilla film you can tell this film's decent yeah it's a good film and so this group of outcasts learns that Kong is in fact the protector of the island and had defended the people from the skull crawlers. Alongside this explanation, there are a few throwaway lines which allow Kong to connect with every other upcoming MonsterVerse film. <laughs> One, the Hollow Earth theory. Yes, in this film, they're setting up a lot more lore. Like, Corey Hawkins' character plays a, uh, like a geologist in this who um, uh, wrote like a dissertation on... Uh, the Hollow Earth theory, trying to substantiate it, which is why he's brought onto the team, and they are able to prove that the Earth underneath Skull Island is hollow through the seismic charges they were dropping, and they're saying that these are like pockets, uh, little habitats that these giant monsters come from, which plays into what they said in the Godzilla film, in which they um, theorise that these monsters went further underground to find safer environments to live in. They've given themselves licence to do whatever the hell they want now. Oh yeah, with such a fuzzy kind of setup, they can do whatever they want with this, you know, uh, oh no, where did this monster to come from oh, I mean, the earth. Earth. 20 uh, seconds of dialogue boom monsterverse explained yes I, I would have liked a bit more lore kind of explaining this but I think we're going to get plenty of lore in uh, the sequel to Godzilla and we'll explain why near the end of this episode so that we don't have too many spoilers throughout it look you either get lore or you get action and we've got a decent mix of this we've got less lore more action yes and the second point is in John C. Riley's explanation of Kong, he says, oh, he's still growing. Yes. Oh, man. You have no idea how much this annoys me. Everyone's saying, oh, it is Kong's little, little monster. He can't, he can't fight Godzilla. Mm. He's still growing. Yeah. He's still going to be big. Also, up until King Kong versus Godzilla, Kong was always little, you know? 
it was like what was it like 50 meters however it was small in the original one right they, they bulked him up for Kung Kong versus Godzilla do you, do you honestly think he's not going to do this please let this meme die the only explained it with that one line and it's licensed enough okay you just need to suspend that disbelief and think okay giant ape last of his kind whatever he's still growing yeah, he's I like, don't care I want to see fighting monsters he's meant to be like the equivalent of like an adolescent kind of teenager I mean I remember uh, little Godzilla in versus destroyer I mean he clearly had still more some growing to do but eh, whatever my a little little pet peeve of mine. And the adventures of Goodman and Jackson eventually descend into Jackson's own madness as he starts obsessing over killing Kong, finding weapons, just generally not helping the team get to the extraction point. Uh, personally, I found some, a decent amount of similarities between the Carl Denham character from Peter Jackson's 2005 adaptation and the characters that Samuel L. Jackson and John Goodman play in this film, in that they are obsessed with this single goal and will say anything they can to excuse it. So Samuel Jackson's will con- continually say, we're going to pick this uh, soldier up, we've left him, we need to go find him. And even when he finds out he's dead, we'll say, we're still going to do this thing anyway. And John Goodman has the same kind of thing, like he'll lie to people to get them on his side, and you know, he'll lie and deceive just so he can get what he wants. But Goodman wasn't as obsessed as no, Jackson. No, 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 nowhere near. He Goodman wasn't showed Captain signs of doubts after seeing how oh, dangerous it was to everyone. He was definitely a lot more open, and he still wanted to kill Kong, but, you know, Know, with a decent military presence. Not a dozen people with a couple of rifles. Not aliens. <laughs> it is It is aliens. Every Vietnam <clears throat> film is aliens. Well, I mean, when you do one Vietnam war that's really good, it's people are bound to imitate it. It's like how this one has lots of imagery that looks like it's pulled out of uh, Apocalypse Now, you know? It's Apocalypse Kong. Well, I found the name for the episode. <laughs> hey! And so, anyway, going back to John C. Riley, he alerts people that opening up the great big holes in the earth with bombs was a bad idea because the skull crawlers will wake up and they killed all of Kong relatives, and so now the big one will obviously wake up and kill everything again. I just want to say how much I love the skull crawlers. It's great. Yes. And so they build a boat and head out toward the end of the island to await the evac. Oh, interesting point to note. Uh, John Voight Roberts has been brought on to direct a Metal Gear film, and the helicopter unit is called the Fox Unit, and the boat, the ramshackle boat they get on is called the Grey Fox. Ooh. Yeah. And among the hijinks ensuing, they come across a Kong graveyard, find the remains of the soldier they were going to find, the military side still obsess over seeking the downed armament so they can kill Kong, that kind of failed, but Burned Kong is burned. Hmm. Woman is like, no, Kong, don't. Great big skull crawler arrives. Everyone legs it. And yeah, Kong yeah. kills big ass skull crawler in really satisfying battle. Oh, man. I love the fights in Kong movies. I love how he tries to do that kind of jawbreaker thing oh, he does in yes. those movies. Yeah, right? Like he tries to do it and like Ramorak's like. Several times. Uh, no. I'm not having any of this, Governor. That was quite impressive because it acknowledged the trope. Yeah, it's a nice reference, but they were still doing their own thing. Like, hey, remember this? Well, this doesn't work with this monster. He's going to try something else. He straight up disemboweled her by oh, pulling man. out the tongue. Yeah, because uh, they have like this kind of chameleon tongue thing, and she grabs the hand that has got Brie Larson in it. So he lets her kind of go in, then grabs. Everybody kind of grabs the rest of her tongue and like just rips her guts out with it. Hmm, that was that was satisfying. Oh man, yeah, a lot of Kong fights are satisfying because of how kind of Visceral. feral and brutal they are. Like the ones in the 2005 movie, those were great. Like with the um, what are they called? What are those they called V Rexes or something like that. Is something like that. V-Rex? That sounds yeah, like right. something out of Sentai. Or am I thinking the... Q-Rex, Q-Rex. Megazord. Oh, uh, yes. You Kong get... versus Q-Rex when? Oh, man, you won't get cooler than the Quantasaurus Rex as a name. Uh, there's Someone's probably done fan art of Kong fighting it. Yeah, yeah, I can believe that. It's going to be very terrible MS Paint line <laughs> drawing. 
Oh, no, it's going to be uh, it's going to be about Photoshop. No, and it's, <clears> it'll <throat> somehow be inflation porn. Oh no! Don't tell me Dobson's part of this community. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the most terrifying thing to come out of this podcast. Anyway. Back on track. Let's talk about some monsters. Skull Island is home to a whole host of monsters like Kong, Mother Longlegs, and John C. Riley. In emphasising that Skull Island was crammed with monsters, they crammed a lot of monsters into it. Absolutely, and these are some nicely original monsters. They did say that we weren't going to see any dinosaurs in it, which was an Afro Kong move without dinosaurs. Kind of disappointing, but yeah, I respect them for doing something different. And we do see dinosaur bones there, like they set up like a, a machine gun and a, a triceratops skull, which is pretty. Neat. Oh yeah, that was a really good. Yeah. Bit. Uh, so essentially, the footage for the monsters is fairly minimal. It was more trailer bait than anything else, yeah. but it still worked. The encounters were good. There was a great big buffalo thing that came oh, out yeah. of the water, and an, an injured one was encountered later that showed how Kong was merciful. Pulled yeah. a helicopter from it. And it, kind of, it, it kind of emphasizes his kind of uh, island protector nature. Yeah. But yeah. For the uh, monsters, we have uh, Kong. Obviously, we have Ramarak, which is like a like the mother uh, skull crawler. The great the big ones. one that straight up Owen and Lars everyone. Oh man, we got the Psycho Vultures, which sounds like a, like some kind of metal band name. I I'm, I'm calling dibs on that one now. They're like little pterodactyl things. They don't do much apart from eat. Their scenes were good, actually. They were. Yeah. I thought they were only there for one small scene, but they pulled apart one guy. They oh, man, picked yeah. him up and drag him off, just kind of rip him apart. Yeah, they had a decent amount of satisfying stuff. Yeah, and there was the great big sodding bamboo kumonga thing. Oh man, yeah, yeah, Mother Longlegs. Apparently, the bit where she impels a guy is a reference to Cannibal Holocaust. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so for the uninitiated, in Cannibal Holocaust, a woman was impaled up the bottom through the mouth, and people thought it was real. They thought yes. it was a snuff film. Oh yeah, they had to have like a group investigate to see whether or not these were real deaths. They had to demonstrate in court that that it wasn't a snuff film. (laughs) And so, yeah, she impales a guy through the mouth, has legs like bamboo stalks, picks people up on tendrils, and that was quite a terrifying fight scene. Yeah, very tense. Like, you weren't sure, because people had been dying up until this point, you weren't sure if the guy she got was going to die, and we're not going to tell you if he does or not. Find that for yourself. It's so spooky because all you see is just her from... From the bottom. It's very much like you from the victim's point of view. And she has like these horrible kind of grabby crab claws like, you know, come here, come here, come here. Ultimately, the fight scene against her is satisfying because you see them hacking like mad at her legs, just trying to get them. You can see them trying different ways to attack her. They start trying to shoot her, but they can't because there's a bloke in the way. So like, how else are we going to do it? Oh, let's chop her legs off. It adds some character to the Marines because it shows their... Soldiers, they, yeah. they know how to do these things. It shows kind of critical thinking from them. They're not just like you know, dumb meatheads. Like uh, shoot it, bang, yeah. We've got uh, the uh, the Maya squid, which is a great reference to King Kong versus Godzilla, oh, the giant octopus. Yes, oh. great fight. That was great because he's surprised by it while drinking water, healing his wounds, and it just comes up at him. And yeah. It doesn't seem like too hard a fight because he fight, struggles with the thing for a bit, then he yes. straights up old boys the thing. Yeah, it's like it's, it's more like a uh, like a nuisance to him. And it's great because he's sat there kind of drinking, then he kind of obviously notices something and just kind of reaches down and drags it up before it can do anything to him. And I think he, doesn't he afterward just drag the yeah, semi-living carcass off. back? Like, whatever, you're my yeah. dinner now. It's great because he just rips off like a couple of tentacles and shoves them in his mouth. It really shows that Kong is in his environment. He yes. is the ruler of Skull Island. You're in his house, like uh, like John C. Riley. You know, you don't come into someone's house dropping bombs without picking a fight. It is Kong's 
domain. I like that great big praying mantis looking thing that they thought was a log. That only had oh, one small yes. scene and it was then fleeing briefly from a skull crawler. But it was good. It had a great concept. Yeah, I like that because it was I think it's one of the few uh, monsters that isn't overtly hostile. Like the guy shoots at it and it kind of starts making this little crying noise and just kind of runs off like after being shot at and seeing the skull crawler behind the guy. Yeah, and it seemed very original. In fact, it was so good. Everything looked like wood. Yeah, well, a lot of them looked like it part of the environment like the skirbuffaloes have like uh things growing on them it's an interesting little thing we first introduced the psycho vultures kind of we don't see them we just see a tree and it turns out that the, what we thought were leaves are actually psycho vultures yeah there's a really wide range of environments in skull island as well because mm. it's like the elder scrolls there's bamboo forests there's great big plains there's valleys like there's a swamps. wasteland yeah at the beach that kind of thing it's um yeah for uh, an island that's pretty not that big it's got a pretty diverse um ecosystem yeah it's just trying to emphasize the fact that it's isolated from the rest of the world everything like else little, evolved like a little microcosm of you know environments you can do the different monsters in basically the skull crawlers themselves i loved the way oh, they man. were designed as in the faces yes. resembling skulls and that's why riley called them those and it was it was entertaining it's nice that he just kind of made up the name like you know a lot of monsters have like uh like oh the natives call him Kong. John C. Riley just to skull crawlers looks like he's got a skull. Sounds neat. It sounds cool, don't diss. And that was a nice self-aware part. It got an interesting design going to it because not only does it have the uh, the two-legged lizard, but it's also got a uh, design influences from one of the angels from Evangelion, No Face from Spirited Away, and uh, Cubone from Pokemon. Well, there's an actual citation for that. Oh yeah, yeah. He, um, I think, yeah, they actually do mention it in an interview. I feel a lot more confident about the Metal Gear movie, knowing knowing who's hands it in. This guy seems like he knows geeky stuff a lot more now. So as a character, Kong's personality is shown early on. Oh yeah, they definitely give these monsters a lot of personality. Like Kong and the Skull Crawlers, especially Ramorak, are shown as being very intelligent. There's a scene where this soldier has is going to try and kind of suicide bomb her, takes out some uh, grenades and goes walking towards her. She instantly kind of realises something's wrong and just kind of backs off a bit, so she doesn't go for him like he hopes she will, which is great, and Kong makes use of, like, improvised weapons. He's a smart character. Oh, God, he picks up a tree and straight up whacks her. Yeah, like, picks up a tree, strips the branches off and just clubs her in the face, uses trees as um, spears. Like, and there's this scene, like, early on after the initial confrontation between Kong and the military, where one of the military dudes is, like, at the edge of a lake, kind of washing his wounds, getting some water, and Kong sits down and does exactly the same thing. So it's a great kind of character moment showing that Kong's just like these guys. They're trying to distance themselves from Peter Jackson's King Kong because he's less of a gorilla more of an actual ape. He has yes. tool use he shows emotion. There's a strong scene where Brie Larson is looking him in the eye and oh I think Hiddleston's doing it as well and yeah. you can see tears in their eyes because they're empathising with him. Hmm. They feel the pain he feels yeah. and he's definitely a character that is quite human actually. He's more yeah. human than the characters in Godzilla 14. <laughs> oh man yeah. You could replace Aaron Taylor Johnson with a CGI ape, and the CGI ape would be more like a human than Darren Taylor Johnson. It says a lot about the direction this film was taken in, because even the CGI monster is a good character, because that's one concern with monster films. Yes. If you've got someone in a suit, that's fine, because you've got someone actually doing And you can acting. tell it's like a person doing that, and hey, there's someone there. With this one, he moves like you'd imagine a great ape would move. And it's important to note that this one isn't a gorilla like Peter Jackson's. He's more like the uh, the original one, where he's just like his own species of great ape. Like, like a Sasquatch kind of thing. Guy walks on two legs he's sort of evolved you definitely can see him being like the uh, end of like an evolutionary line like he does do like a gorilla thing on all fours but that's only so he can get some speed up to jump he does have a couple of neat scenes where it's kind of juxtaposing what he's doing with what humans are doing there's a scene where Brie Larson is trying to take a long 
exposure photo of an aurora. Then it cuts to seeing Kong sitting down on the edge of a cliff, looking at the same aurora. You know, he's intelligent, he can appreciate like a nice view, he can appreciate beauty. It's important to add that human side to him, because you've got the warlike party who are trying to kill him, mm. and otherwise you'd have people who are like, not understanding Kong and saying, oh yeah, let's just kill him, where instead you want the audience saying, no, don't do that. He was such a good character, the yeah. giant CGI ape. And you can tell how kind of frustrated he is with what's going on, you know, like, you know, stop waking these monsters up, guys, come on. And even near the end, like, after he's had these encounters, he's seen the humans, he knows there are a few good ones, but there are the, well, there are the ones that are trying to kill him, hmm. and when he's walking out and sees more helicopters, helicopters coming. coming in, like he just beats his chest like, you know, don't you go starting stuff this time. He beats his chest and roars, and you don't know what happens afterward. It's implied that either he attacks or does something, unless we're referring to the end of credits thing. We'll mention that at the end of our cast, because we want you to be able to listen to as much of this as possible without kind of clicking off. We crave your attention. Pay attention to us. Love Please us. Love us. So, Samuel L. Jackson's character, who was allegedly named Preston Packard. We don't remember this at all, but uh, he is the strongest character in this. There's this really nice scene with him at the beginning where, um, like, one of his soldiers comes through and asks if he's okay, he kind of takes out this box and looks at the medals in there and pictures, and he can tell, like, he really doesn't want to go because he feels betrayed, and he feels kind of useless, and he just kind of pulls out of him, and it the whole thing kind of fades to night, and he's still in the same position, so it shows that he has real trouble moving on from things. Packard is the military higher-up, salty about the end of the Vietnam War, as he knows that they've lost. He keeps trying to defend that in front of Brie Larson's character, but he knows that all the effort that had been put into things, all of the people that had died had been for nothing, and so when he develops this grudge against Kong, it becomes his new reason to live. Oh yeah, like, you can tell his kind of way of life has just been destroyed by the Vietnam War ending, and the only time we see him actually smile is when he's being told, like, you know, your job's not over, you've got to do something else now. And he actually thanks his superior for giving him another job. Kind of sad, really, you know? He's a soldier. He lives for war. Compared to his subordinates, who are doing it for different reasons, they're yeah. upset they have another assignment. They wanted to go home, see their mother, see their kids. They have lives to go back to, you know, one's got a job working at an airline, one's got a son to go home to, one wants to see his mum, that kind of thing. And the one scene where Packard is watching from the ground as Kong destroys the helicopters, and you see them making eye contact through the flames, that cements that relationship. You can yeah. tell that... He Ahab is dying to get his whale. And Kong now recognises his enemy, you know, as a face to put to the destruction that's just taken place. Next up is John Goodman's character, and I think this is my personal favourite because he adds a lot more lore to Monarch and the universe as well. I think this is a really good role that John Goodman played. I last saw him in 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is another good one. You can tell he's desperate to keep Monarch afloat and to prove monsters exist. Of course, that's due to his own experiences as the ship he was on was destroyed by a monster. I don't think it's directly mentioned it's Kong, but you can tell he wants it's, monsters dead. It's not said what the monster is. I think it's implied that it may be Godzilla, but again, they they don't say anything outright, it's just, you know, a monster attacked and now he has this grudge against monsters. Yeah, they only keep hinting at Godzilla every 50 seconds or so. Oh, those nukes, yeah, we were just trying to kill something. Hey, remember, uh, remember that film we had that you guys didn't like so much? It wasn't that bad, right? Wait for the sequel, guys. It's gonna be better, we swear. He was also motivated by a desire to kill, but not so much as Packard, and... Not so was... rapidly. He still wanted to kill Kong, but he was more rational with it, you know, like he wanted them to get back and get the military to come back in full force to do it. 
He didn't have that self-destructive desire because, well, he was sensible, he was rational, he didn't watch his people die in a pointless war, hmm. then to find a new enemy. Yeah. He knew what the enemy was, and he knew the best way to deal with them. Oh boy, John C. Riley's character, Marlowe. That was a great character. I was not expecting to like him. When I saw him in the trailers, I thought, oh no, this is going to wreck the tone, it's going to be this comedic character, it's just going to make things weird. It really doesn't. All his comedic bits make sense. Dude's been trapped on an island for 28 years and the natives don't speak. Of course, he's going to be a bit nuts. And his nut job kind of moments are funny. Like, there's this bit where one of the scientists from Landsat, the organization that's mapping the area, he looks at him and says, I'm going to stab you by the end of the night. And he says he doesn't know if he's thinking or talking. And then, like, he has this really awkward, like, wow, you're a good bunch of boys to die with. We're all going to die here. Yeah. People thought that his comic appeal would have ruined the tone completely, but it is so well implemented. You can tell that mm. he's been damaged by it, but he's just been shaped by it completely. It's made his personality, and even the off-screen relationship with a Japanese officer. Yeah, you can tell that they were brothers. You can tell that his loss had an impact on him. He's not just a comic relief character, because he does have some very good, serious, and more somber moments. Even though it's kind of presented funnily when he's talking about what he really wants, like a beer and a hot dog and watching a uh, baseball game, you can tell that's funny, but at the same time, kind of sad as well. Yeah, he's a character that has a lot of levels for the comic relief, and I find the best part is because it's John C. Riley, known for performing as Dr. Steve Brule and Tim and Eric, on the back of his flight suit, there's the slogan, <laughs> good for your health. <laughs> it's like, for your health. Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Brule on Skull Island. It's bad for your health. You shouldn't have come here. St stay with the natives. Don't go to the south. And so for the actual relationship, I think it was Gunpei, the guy yeah, who I, you lived Funnily with. enough, the guy with the least uh, screen time is the only character whose full name I can remember. It's Gunpei Akari. That's because you're a weeaboo who only remembers Japanese names. Okay, I'm going to pretend you didn't say that to me. It's funny because the sword that um, Gunpei left behind is one of the uh, best weapons against the monsters. The guns don't really seem to have much of an effect on the skull cross, but like he, he'll slice the leg of one as it goes by. This is one thing that also makes me think that this guy gets the Metal Gear tone because Tom Hiddleston takes it and like puts a gas mask on so he's running around in gas, slicing psycho vultures with a katana. If that doesn't kind of say the tone of a Metal Gear film, I don't know what does. After Gunpei's death, Marlow does keep his sword in his grave as a sign of remembrance, and when they finally decide to move out on the boat, the first thing he does is take out the sword and sheath it, like Wouldn't in honour of his friend. But that being said, though, he leaves it kind of stuck in the ground. Wouldn't that rust the glorious Nippon Steel? It's glorious Nippon Steel, it's immune to corrosion. For the ten million times. For the ten billion times, <laughs> it's that powerful. <laughs> and so, in the film, when encountering a bunch of psycho vultures, he just decides to slice them up, and it's amazing. Oh man, I love it. Like, um, running through a cloud of gas, just left and right, just slicing them open is great. Because he's the unhinged one, you don't expect him to oh, survive God. that. You expect him to die, but he straight up takes it out and starts slashing at them, cleaving them in two. It's kind of disappointing that Tom Hiddleston takes it from him later on, because, oh, come on, show us more Samurai John C. Riley. we need this. Yeah, he tosses it to him, sticks on a gas mask to retrieve a guy, and just starts cutting them up, surrounded by poison gas. It's a weird moment, but at the same time, I, I like it. The tone's kind of all over the place, but it's not in a bad way, and it's better than the kind of consistent dullness of Godzilla 2014. Even when a skull crawler comes along, Marlowe stares it down, <laughs> utters death before dishonor in Japanese, and just as the thing charges, carves 
carves a slice out of his leg. I think we all know who the we real weeaboo here is. It's Marlo. That's amazing because you can tell from just the few lines that he says about Gunpei that he's taken that part onto himself. He's learned from him. Yeah. They've become the best of friends and he honours that sword. I still wish we had more screen time with them. Like at least a montage of them just doing their thing, you know, like uh, like working out this weird kind of midway language between them, like a mixture of English and Japanese uh. so they can kind of communicate. But I just want this. Just give this to me. We can pray for a comic adaptation. That would be oh, amazing. Yeah. We did have a, like a Godzilla prequel for a, like Godzilla Awakening for the 2014 film. Maybe we'll get something from IDW. I don't know. That'd be neat. Marlo was a great character. He survived. You expect yeah. him to die early on. But no, he. Um, oh, there's this really sweet little scene. Like it's shot in like a like a Super 8 or something like that of him going home, finding his um, his wife and his the son he never knew growing up. And it ends with him getting what he always wanted, which is a beer, a hot dog, and watching a baseball game. Oh, that was one of the best ways to end the film. He's sitting yeah. in front of the TV, and you can tell he was happy. Yeah. He's a character that you're actually happy to have made progress. Mm. This film has characters that you care about, you just can't remember the names. Imagine that. I mean... Minor nitpick, but hey, you know, at least I care about these characters. At least we didn't have a uh, too much of a Brian Cranston situation. The only character we care about in Godzilla 14 dies like half an hour in. You only cared about him because he was a good actor, not yeah. the writing. The writing was horrible. He just acted it well enough for you to care. Oh, yeah. I mean, Brian Cranston really should have been in that whole film. It what should have been just about uh, Brian Cranston and Ken Watanabe doing their thing, you know? What if he died and came back as Zordon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the real reason he's stuck in a time warp isn't because of um, Rita Repulsa, it's just because he was uh, killed by a monster. So, briefly returning to Corey Hawkins' character, apparently named Houston Brooks, we cannot remember for the life of us. He does have a few moments, like his uh, saying, like, John Goodman's character was the only one who took him seriously about his Hollow Earth thing, and they kind of works for him now because of that. And then he has a couple of moments with the Chinese girl, um, San, her name is apparently, I wouldn't know. Man, she has the least to do in this film. She doesn't do anything. She has, like, a couple of moments with Corey Hawkins' character, and that's it. She literally is just there to appeal to the Chinese market. And I wouldn't mind if they gave her something to do. But she was just there. She it's didn't do just, anything. It's just basic pandering. At least if you're going to pander, do it well. At least in Independence Day, they were still pandering to the Chinese market. But at least that character was, you know, engaging. She did things. Still, at least Brie Larson's character was a good female role. She was the typical left-wing journalist who was known for panning the war. And so she had conflicts with the military types. But even and then, they didn't really do that much with her. I, she was a solid character, but... a flat one. She didn't really do much. I mean, Brie Larson acted her well, but there wasn't much to act. There wasn't much that was written in. I did like how she took photographs of everything, especially with the natives. Yes. She had them do the peace pose. Yeah, that does look a lot like uh, the war photography you see from Vietnam. Or, yeah. Or well, any kind of war photography, really, seeing um, like natives, stuff like that. It was really nice. You can tell she had an agenda, but she was also enjoying the ride while she was there. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> until the monsters show up, that is. I kind of feel like Brie Larson's character is only there just to have a pretty female there in a Kong movie because you kind of have to have that. And they do kind of have a reference to the whole Kong, you know, carrying a uh, beautiful woman, that kind of thing. But they don't really do much with that. It's just kind of he picks her up and saves her from drowning, has a moment with her on the cliff where she touches his face, and then that's it. One thing that rubs me the wrong way with that scene is that it's unrealistic how he had her clenched in his fist while fighting the skull crawler. <laughs> right. And it plunged into the big-ass skull crawler's esophagus and, then... and still managed to pull out all the organs while keeping his hand closed and keeping this woman, this frail little human being, 
being who had like been rattled so many times, beaten, <laughs> because obviously it's it's a fight. She should have a concussion at least. She wasn't covered in bruises. She looked fresh as a daisy. You know what? It would have been more realistic if you just kind of threw her up in the air, did all that, and then caught her again. That would have been that was that's the only change I would suggest to Kong. Just like some sort of circus trick. Yeah, actually, I kind of really wish I had like a giant uh, elephant monster in this movie. That would have been great. Imagine I don't know why, it just would have been cool, you know? That giant buffalo is one of a giant elephant. Actually, yeah, give it, like, do with the tusks what they did with the buffalo horns. Yeah, right. Have Kong fight it, grab it by the trunk, and just swing oh, it away. Oh, man, yeah. We... Have it Final Wars Kamonga the thing to death. <laughs> it's a nice amount of uh, original monsters there, you know? It's not relying too much on nostalgia factor. And like I said, an end credit scene. Oh, hint, yes. hint. So moving on to themes, it was weird that they went with Vietnam. I mean, they were filming in Vietnam, and they were setting it during the Vietnam, and I remember reading an interview with uh, John Voight Roberts where he said, we'd feel bad if we didn't have some serious subtext about Vietnam in this. He said he thought they would be tasteless to just have the iconography there and not make a reference of it. And I, I respect that, actually. That's a pretty decent stance to take. They did do it well, and it was heavy-handed because every other scene, <laughs> they're like, this is a Vietnam movie. These soldiers are talking about how they killed farmers. Um, here's... Oh, look. Here's oh, look they've got great, napalm. Here's a great big enemy who is in his natural environment and killing everyone really well. Let's poke it. It's very, very heavy-handed, but it's done respectfully. It's tasteful. Bearing in mind this is a monster movie, when was the last time you saw a monster movie with some kind of subtext or message that wasn't heavy-handed? They all are, apart from the uh, first Godzilla. I don't know. I think Godzilla's Revenge was a very, very subtle insight into the seedy, strange underbelly of Japanese children's (laughs) dreams. Rex, you know what Godzilla's Revenge does to me. (laughs) Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's that bad. So it's anyway, bad. we've had enough of bad things back onto the good thing. Like Vietnam. Hey. It's, uh, it's such an obvious Vietnam movie, but it just handles it I, like every other Vietnam movie. It's, it works. I mean, it's aliens with a giant tape. It's heavy handed, but it's not offensive. Samuel L. Jackson's character kind of dragging his soldiers around is kind of reference to how the uh, the soldiers on the ground in Vietnam were dragged around by the higher ups and politicians back in Washington. Yeah, it's quite cheeky. Let's make a Vietnam movie set immediately after Vietnam. Like we said, heavy handed, but it's as well done as you can in a King Kong movie. Yeah, it's not going to be Oscar-winning material. Even got the tone right for a lot of things, including the natives. Like in yeah. Kong 2005, they were a bunch of oh, cannibalistic, spear-chucking yeah, savages. They've all got crew, apparently. Something that looked like that. Bongo, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, and, oh man, I was reading a bunch of posts and they're like, oh no, they got natives, oh, it's going to be racist. It was oh. all right, it was yeah, respectful. It was fine. Yeah, Just had a bunch of silent natives who covered themselves in runes, and they did their thing. They had their own agrarian society, they yeah. built massive walls, they worshipped Kong and feared him. They had their own lives going on. They weren't really a focus. They were just there to provide background. Well, I think they're probably the, uh, the nicest natives in a, in a Kong movie you'll ever find, you know? Yeah, even John C. Riley's character learns to communicate with them. It's all that body language stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's cute. A re- it's a really nice scene where he's, when he's saying goodbye to me. He's genuinely sad because these are the people who have kind of housed and taken care of him. I like these natives. They're a bit cagey at, at first, but when John C. Riley kind of vouches for them, they're all kind of, yeah, all right, whatever. They seem to understand him. They're like, okay, he's making noise again. Yeah, just nod and uh, you know, hope he stops talking. Maybe they're a bit like the Elcor from Mass Effect. All their social cues are very, very subtle. And 
and he's picked up on them over the years. Mm. But he's just hyping it up just to make sure that they don't do it and to communicate it to the team that are also punting SMGs at them. Yes. <laughs> I'm kind of worried because we all know that Mothra is confirmed for the next one. I'm kind of worried that if they do an infantile thing that they'll just have natives like this. I, I do like the slightly goofy 60s natives I had going on. Were they showing natives... Like, were they wearing, like, brown face paint in the Mothra films? I'm just imagining Japanese people blacking up. Oh, yeah, they do that. They're called gangados. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I now want to date a gangaro girl and unironically teach her some Al Jolson songs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be beautiful. Well, that's one way of putting it. Fine. Horribly offensive. You're yeah, happy now. Do. In terms of tone and theme, heavy-handed, but as tastefully done as we can. Oh, it's very tasteful. It tastefully handles the horrors of the Vietnam War, even in this jaded 21st (laughs) century perspective. In a monster movie, no less. Yeah. It would have fitted like any war film, but no, this is a movie with a giant ape destroying things, and it's tasteful. I love the smell of monsters in the morning. Smells like a good movie. See, one little thing that annoys me is that they never call him King Kong. It's just, you know, the the, uh, most they say is, yeah, that's Kong, he's king around here. Oh, King Kong was more the title that the West gave him when they cast him over. And so this is New Kong, and as you mentioned with Mothra, oh, are we now talking about the end of the credits? Oh boy, we may as well. Oh man, this end credits thing would be worth the price of admission alone just to see that. Okay, so essentially the end credits, so very, very long. Near the end credits, you then see them talking about Toho legal stuff. So Mothra, King Ghidorah, Rodan, Godzilla. What could this mean? Property of Toho. Then... Boom, black. Tom Where's Hiddleston it? says yeah, something. You waited this long for this. And it's like, ah, ha, ha, we're post-credits. Yeah, thing. we're losers. But then it turns out they're in like this one-way mirror uh, interrogation And this actually kind of bothers me that this bit, it's got a weird kind of character thing, because up until then, Brie Larson hadn't seemed like this, but she's like, oh, I'm going to tell the Russians. Do, do, do. Yeah. Why? Well, she's a photographer. She sells out. That's what journalists do. Then Corey Hawkins and token Chinese appeal character come in and say, this goes deeper than you think, and this they, world is not um, yeah, they have like this slideshow thing and they show you like cave paintings. Oh, it's beautiful. You got uh, Rodan. Looks a bit like Gaios from the Gamera films a bit because you don't see the independent Rodan's horns. Rodan's kind of generic. You take that back right now. I love Rodan. The thing is, what I was interested in with the cave painting, it showed Mothra. First of all, like, yes. oh my god. Yeah, it's, Mothra. It's kind of vague in the design, so they could do oh, anything yeah. with it. Like, it's just a generic moth design. Like, yeah, we haven't finalized the design. It's Godzilla, just... obviously. They've got the outline set up. And then we've got King Ghidorah as well. Oh. They've got two cave paintings of King Ghidorah. They were trying to emphasize it that much. One yeah. of King Ghidorah, then of Godzilla fighting King Ghidorah. Yeah, they've got the two of them squaring up. We're going into full fangirl territory here, but man, it was great. We're going to get a King Ghidorah guy. Oh, it's the first time I think that the West had embraced the Japanese monsters. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to it. Do you know who's directing the thing? Yeah, Michael Doctor, he's directed a couple of horror films, Krampus most notably. They seem to be going for like an unknown kind of thing for these directors because uh, before Godzilla, Gareth Edwards has only done monsters, John Voight Roberts, I think he only did like a couple of documentaries or something like that. This guy's done horror stuff. I kind of respect it. He's done some writing for bigger movies. He wrote for X-Men Apocalypse. Ooh, great. He even did X-Men 2. Oh, he also did Superman Returns. Ooh, he well. He kind of wrote that. 2 out of 3 ain't bad, I, I guess. Yeah. He seems to be mostly focusing on horror films, some superhero stuff, but 
I'm optimistic because at oh, yeah, least it's yeah. not what Gareth Edwards did. Oh man! Because think about it with Kong, you saw actual monsters fighting. We with... saw the monsters in full. You didn't see them through like a TV or anything. Oh no! With Godzilla 2014, you had the bulky marine type oh, in the foreground, and then in the blurry background, then you had the monsters fighting. That was terrible. I understand what he was going for, and to an extent, I respect it. But just don't do it in a Godzilla movie. Come on, man! It worked in Cloverfield. Like, oh no, let's not show the monsters straight away because we want to show from like a human perspective because you know it's an original monster no one goes to a movie to see Cloverfield but you go to a movie to see Godzilla Kong in comparison to Godzilla is Citizen Kane yes like within the first minute you see Kong not for very long but hey Kong's here yo and even in the first proper encounter with the helicopters you see him in there. Like, he's doing everything well it's not just shying away you've got full yeah. on camera footage you've got massive action scenes you've got what people want so no cheeky on. nudge nudge wink wink hey is he there is he not you're not gonna show the whole of him he's just full on there you see it in the trailer it's a bit where he's standing up against the sunset it looks great I really wasn't as optimistic I thought it would just be like okay here's the bombing then it would show like Kong resting and then getting angry like just a side view of his eyes or something but no it's full-on Kong wrecking everything up that is just amazing and so obviously they've explained he's going to get bigger so there's your justification for yeah. fighting Godzilla because hey it was he's the 70s he, it was the 70s and the movie's going to be released 2019 I think yeah, yeah, roughly, then. yeah roughly then and so over 40 years you're gonna have yourself a big ape yeah, I mean, like I said, he's an adolescent. He's probably not gone through his growth spurt yet. That'd be quite terrifying, oh, really, man. considering he about Godzilla's size. What would the natives think? That would be a mountain. I think he'd be picking the island at that point. Blimey, O'Reilly. It's like Katamari. He just rolls the thing up. <laughs> so what do you want to happen for the Godzilla sequel? I want it to be just a shot-for-shot remake of Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. That's all I want. That's all we can hope for, really. I mean, they've got all the monsters for it, so they're clearly drawing inspiration from that. What I worry is that they'll take away the mysticism and spirituality of Mothra. I worry that they won't have the fairies in it either. Oh, yeah. And I worry that Ghidorah won't be a space dragon either. I'm fine for a terrestrial Ghidorah as long as it's explained well. You're done relatively right. Don't give me that look, friend. Get out. Hey. Get out. Ghidorah's a wild card. Mothra, she has to be some sort of religious deity. But even then, you've got Kong as the good guy. So then you've got, ooh, is it going to be like Kong and Mothra versus Godzilla? Also versus King Ghidorah. That would be amazing. Kong's only coming into a Godzilla versus is Kong. Oh, that is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing I've got, because Godzilla is weirdly benevolent in the 2014 film, and Kong is pretty benevolent in this one as well. He's just acting out of self-preservation. How are we going to have two good guys fight, well... you know? I mean, oh no. Oh no. It, 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 the jokes are true. It's really going to be like a uh, Batman versus Superman. Mothra. You're letting them kill Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that name? Well, Godzilla in that film was more indifferent than anything else. He was just being no, territorial. No, it's, not, it's not that he was indifferent. He actively stops himself from crashing into ships and stuff like that. Oh, really oh, annoys yeah. me. Any other Godzilla would just crash straight on through them. Why is he a good guy? He's like a yeah. he's like a post shower Godzilla who you know Manila has kind of mellowed out even more. That's a horrifying mental image. You know how like in the Showa films Godzilla kind of slowly got less and less evil. Yeah, this is like twenty years after the Showa films. Uh, Showa Godzilla's just actually kind of a good guy now. He's a good guy who just hits the roids every now and then. Pretty much. I have faith now because of how good Kong was. Like I said, my only worry is that Mothra will not be as spiritual as she was in the Japanese films and Ghidorah won't be a space monster. All I'm hoping for is that they have a decent balance of action scenes and human interaction only when it's needed. Like, you could tell they restrained themselves in Kong. They left out some details, only gave you the basics just to justify what's going on on camera. 
Hey, do you reckon they'll have aliens in King of the Monsters? Oh, then, okay, then that would probably explain Ghidorah. Maybe some sort of entity that arrives every certain number of years. Oh, oh. man, that would be great. Like a kind of um, prophesy. Isn't that what Death Ghidorah was like in the Rebirth movies? Oh, yeah. Like a kind of prophesied thing that would come around every now and again. Kind of like a Reaper, but just for Earth. I do like kind of Ghidorah's standing in like the show ones, at least. It's kind of like a Galactus who doesn't actually eat the planets. He just destroys them. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the gravity beams are done. Oh, yeah. I, I just want to see Legendary's design. Oh, man. The 2014 design for Godzilla is my favorite, but it's a good one. Do you think they're going to work in the scene from Versus King Ghidorah where he strangles him? Okay, this is something they have to do like every time Ghidorah comes around. Like, Ghidorah has to throttle Godzilla with his neck. Godzilla has to stamp on Ghidorah's necks and flip him around. They had better not miss those in this one. I really want to see that. I hope when they include Mothra, she'd better bite Godzilla's tail as well. Oh, like a lava, yes. Yes, that tail-biting little turd. Because they always do that like, nom. Yeah, it's I love, a um, very old thing. Even in Tokyo SOS, it was fairly serious. It's like, sod it, nom. Well, they, they do that in the comics. The baby Mothra goes to bite Godzilla's tail, and Godzilla kind of looks around and gives her a look, and she kind of lowers her head and just kind of turns around again. Aw, that's adorable. Yeah, I hope they make Mothra look not gross. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, not edgy, dark no. body horror style. Like, uh, remember some of the concept art from, like, older Godzilla films where she looks yeah. like a real kind of caterpillar? Don't no, do that. You want a big... Actually, lumpy, I would, sort of cute thing. Yeah, I would say that her design from Tokyo SOS would work. I'm I, just hoping they do Imago Mothra well, because you've got to keep that wing pattern. Oh, yeah, you know, you can't change the wing pattern. I mean, that's why the um, uh, GMK one isn't oh, my favourite. Oh, that hideous. She the looked plastic. Well. He looked plastic. I mean, I know they're all made out of plastic and rubber and stuff like that, but that one looked like it. The others don't. I think that was mostly CGI as well. Oh yeah, she does have a lot of CGI moments. Always with that weird kind of wasp stinger thing she had at the end. Yeah, like. and again, one indication of her being all shiny and stuff was that she'd just come out of the cocoon. Yeah. It showed like her wings developing, which was a yeah, really like cool Yeah, they're all scene. kind of transparent. That was a nice that touch. That was beautiful. It was beautifully handled, but not a great design. No, no. Oh, the purple eyes as well. Probably aren't going to make big fluffy Mothra either. I'll, I want fluffy Mothra. Give me Fluffthra. They'll go for something that... Oh God, I just hope they don't go for like a proboscis thing. Mm. They have like they have like the little no. maw. That, they've got to have that. I hadn't thought about that. It's like that meme, you know, no fear. <laughs> something, yeah, something. One fear. Oh no. I don't, yeah, no. I don't want it to be too kind of butterfly-y. No, you've got to maintain like the Japanese cutesy yet big-ass monster design. Another thing. We need the song and I hope it's just like the original in Japanese song. Ooh, or at least playing in the background, like in GMK. Don't say that. They'll listen to this and think they can get away with that. Don't do, do it, it, Legendary. Do it. Annoy no, Ranger. Do it. You hate me. Always. God, I just want them to sing. I love the song. Or at least one of the other songs, like Mahara Masara or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, that little wake-up thing for the egg. Give us a song. Like I said, I worry that they're going to miss out the more goofy, hokey, cheesy bits. And that's what makes these monsters so beloved. We love Mothra because she's like this weird kind of moth hippie goddess thing. I hope they keep the symbol like they have someone form the symbol at it. Like in Tokyo SOS, they make it out of chairs. That was a great part, because yeah. you see a kid rushing to like, okay, I've got to solve this problem. Man, what made that kid think that was a great idea? Like, oh man, this symbol's on this charm. If I make the symbol there, it'll summon Mothra. Oh, it's a, a common disorder among Japanese children, which lets them know exactly the best way to solve a problem. It's called oh, Kenny Syndrome. It takes so many lives. Kenny Syndrome is serious. We'll be doing a cast in support. Yes, yeah, so it'll be a charity drive. Syndrome. We'll do like a live stream, just kind of yeah, donate to that, and hopefully we can we can solve this problem together. 
I think that kid from the Kamen Rider gummies is succumbing to it. We need to stop him before he starts dreaming of blue ginger shock goblins. That's such a juicy career ahead of him. And so this concludes our Kong Skull Island special. Yeah, you like those puns, don't you? I only like them when I make them. It's it's bad when you do it. It just feels weird. <laughs> yes. So this has been the Spandex Power Armor podcast. Please check us out on www.spandexpowerarmor.com. That's with a U, the right way, God's way of spelling it. Also check our Facebook, Twitter groups, YouTube, and our SoundCloud. Hey, bruh, check out my SoundCloud, bruh. Check out my- we'll also be releasing this on like a mixtape. <laughs> oh, yeah, check out my mixtape, bruh. Tape. And again, this is brought to you by tokutoystore.com, a wonderful source for filling that hole that needs to be filled with Sentai figures and x stuff, I guess, if you're that sort of deviant. <laughs> Keep on writing, folks, and check out my mixtape. Stay fabulous. It's for your health. 